Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your ghost, Ty Bannerman. It is the season of chilling stories, midnight monsters, and spectral emanations, and we are here for it. This morning, we will be looking into why ghost stories and tales of the supernatural are so popular no matter the time of year, and how they can encourage us to learn more about our state, our culture, and our own family. And we also want to hear your stories this morning. Have you encountered a spooky interloper, an experience you just can't explain? Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? We are ready to believe you. So call us at one 5 or and tell us your haunting tales. And we're going to start the show this morning with an interview I recorded earlier in the week with Nasario Garcia, a collector of folk tales and the author of a multitude of books, including Brujas, Bultos y Brasas, Tales of Witchcraft and the Supernatural in the Pecos Valley, which features interviews about the supernatural tradition in northern New Mexico. Here's that conversation now. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Garcia. You've collected a wide variety of stories from many parts of New Mexico. What drew you to interview folks about supernatural stories in particular? I suppose the simple answer to your question is my personal interest in trying to preserve uh, not only cultural traditions, but certainly whole genre on witchcraft. Was there a reason that you focused on the the Pecos Valley for this book? The Pecos Valley is self-contained, both geographically as well as culturally. The fact that the small hamlets within the Pecos Valley, proud as they were, and I say were because most of my informants have passed away, they exercised a certain pride within their own little village. And there were these challenges, one village challenging the other as to who uh, preserved the cultural traditions better. So the title of the book is uh, Brujas, Bultos y Brasas. Could you tell me what what each of these words means? Sure. Brujas, of course, is uh, witches. Brasas, sparks or... Uh, probably sparks of fire, okay, and bultos. Bultos in New Mexico, uh, a lot of people associate it with the religious statues, the church, but in a lot of the small communities, bultos also meant ghosts. I'm familiar with uh, brujas and, and bultos in this case, but how does sparks, how do brasas figure into this? I can relate at least one story. It was not unusual for men in particular to ride horseback in the dead of night because they'd been visiting uh, a compadre in another village or perhaps uh, a gentleman had been uh, seeing a girlfriend although there weren't girlfriends as such back then. But in any case, even even on the slide, they would see a young lady coming home. They would see sparks flying out of the chimney 
of some abandoned adobe house. Nobody living there. Mm -hmm. That is because witches once upon a time inhabited that particular house. And for that matter, perhaps the spirit is still there, if not the live witch as such. So that was a kind of a common sighting? I wouldn't say it was uh, all that common, but it was not unusual. Mm -hmm. I've heard, I heard stories. I, in my valley, there was a house in a, in a village called San Luis where the same story was told. And these stories are universal. Uh, simply because you would hear them in the Pecos Valley doesn't mean that they didn't occur in other valleys. Did collecting these stories change your view of these experiences people had? No, it didn't change. It reinforced mm -hmm. what I grew up with. Because in some cases, not only reinforced, uh, the fact that many of the stories that I grew up with, I was here in the Pecos Valley, I was here in Las Vegas, I was here in Southern Colorado, so it reinforced what I grew up with, and in some cases, expanded. Mm -hmm. Because invariably, I would hear a story uh, related to witchcraft that I had not heard. Well, if we talk, for example, about the evil eye, that is so common, or was so common in the Southwest, particularly New Mexico, because New Mexico, until the last uh, 30, 40 years, retained uh, a kind of a cultural integrity when it came to so many facets, not just of folklore, but other uh, aspects of our culture. and. When you look at the evil eye, a lot of my students were surprised when I would tell them the evil eye is identified with Hispanics of northern New Mexico and elsewhere. But guess what? My research tells me that the evil eye actually started in the Scandinavian countries and migrated in a way orally uh, through Europe until it reached Spain. But in Spain, it was uh, it, it, it was inherited, for lack of a better word, uh, by the Spaniards, and they saw something that was very uh, very tangible and very much the kind of superstition that connected with all other aspects of uh, uh, of the witchcraft and so forth. And by the time it gets to Spain, as it developed, the evil eye developed in Spain, and it was uh, taken to the New World and ultimately places like northern New Mexico. I think the evolution enabled the, the evil eye phenomenon to grow and and for people to begin to associate it with this or that. And probably the strongest example that I can give you of the evil eye associated with babies, mm -hmm. when babies are born. Yeah. If a couple had a young, uh, had a baby, and it was the first child in the family, 
a neighbor, particularly a woman, would come over and say, oh, how beautiful your child, etc., etc. This over-admiration somehow transferred this uh, idea of the evil eye because of over-admiration. And the comadre, the visitor, would leave. And then a day later, the mother and the grandmother of the child would say, what is wrong with our child? Mm-hmm. The child isn't eating. It's in, uh, was being breastfed, but wouldn't want any milk, and so on and so forth. Ah, has to be the evil eye. So they would call the comadre who came over. She was the suspect. Uh-huh. And she would come over, and they would ask her to get a drink of water and to spit in the baby's face and to make a sign of the cross in her forehead, and that the child presumably would get well. And in most cases it did, but I'll give you another example. There was always, and this may come uh, maybe as a surprise as it did to a lot of my students, there was always a person named Juan in a community, or a Juana, but more importantly, a Juan. A Juan would come over, and the grandmother, the mother would say, our child, I think, has the evil eye. And he had this power within him to hold the child and make the sign of a cross on the, on the baby's forehead, say a prayer, and the baby would be well within a day, within, within hours. The baby would start crying because it was hungry and started to eat. Have you personally had any experiences that you would consider supernatural? <laughs> I have a book the University of Houston published called Rattling Chains. Okay? There was a place probably about a half a mile, three quarters of a mile from where I grew up called El Coruco, the bed bug. It was known for the supernatural. If we had been to a dance as kids, we would ride a horse and we didn't want to go with our parents on the way home. We'd get to El Coruco and we'd stop and we'd listen to see if there was any noise. And I recall vividly one time, just as we pause, here is this bulto, this black, object moving towards us, towards the road. And my cousin Juan and I looked and looked, and he says, we need to get out of here. And I said, but this bulto is in front of us. He said, yes, let's just stop. Let's just wait and, and observe. As this bulto got close to the road, it looked like a witch, but it it was a witch dressed in a black outfit and on the side had like a rosary, but it wasn't a rosary, it was chains. Mm. It was a witch, a bulto, impersonating a nun, <laughs> okay? But it wasn't a religious nun. So I said, Juan, what do we do? He said, don't you know? 
I said, well, there's several things we could do. We could just take off and go home. He said, no, here's what we'll do. We're going to go, and as the bulldog starts crossing the road, you just do this. And I said, what? He said, you make the sign of the cross, and you say, Pongo te las cruces. May this cross come descend upon you, the bulto. And the bruja went on and didn't bother us, and we went home. And it worked. It worked. But religion was something that you invoked if you wanted to protect yourself from witches. How do you think that the oral tradition in places like the Pecos Valley is is changing with the new generations? Dramatically. Dramatically. There was a couple, the Gallegos. Now, Pedro and his wife, Josefina, they owned a store in Villanueva, in the Pecos Valley. We became dear friends. And I asked him, and I think there's a quotation in my introduction. I asked him uh, more or less the same question. And he said in Spanish, Los jóvenes de hoy en día no tienen interés en nuestra cultura y nuestra cultura se va a morir. Today's youth are not interested in our culture, and our culture, after we die, is going to fade away. Prophetic words? Indeed. I already see this, and I would venture to say just a haphazard guess, there are probably no more than I don't know, 5% of the youth who have an appreciation not only for their language but for their culture. Thank you very much and um, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ty. I appreciate your invitation. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Ty Bannerman. We are talking about stories of the supernatural today, and we want to hear from you. Have you ever had a ghostly encounter? You can call us at 505-277-5866 and tell us about it. We will be back in a moment. Support comes from the New Mexico Philharmonic, performing a night of Argentine bandoneon music played by soloist Richard Scofano, Saturday, November 5th, 6 p.m. at Popejoy Hall. Information at nmphil.org. Connect to your local community by becoming a KUNM business underwriter. Program support through underwriting highlights your business while supporting news and locally curated music. To become a business underwriter, contact Kelly at 505-277-3969. When flutist Emmy Ferguson was six years old, she had the chance to go see two of her flute heroes in concert, Sir James and Lady Jean Galway. When she met them after the concert, young Emmy had one simple question she desperately wanted answered. Flutist Emmy Ferguson looks back on help from her heroes on the next performance today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Ty Bannerman. We just heard from author and folklorist Nazario Garcia about his book, Brujas, Bultos y Brasas, Tales of Witchcraft and the Supernatural in the Pecos Valley. 
My next guest is Hannah Nordhaus, a journalist who has written for National Geographic and the Smithsonian, among other publications, and is the best-selling author of The Beekeeper's Lament and American Ghost. Thank you so much for talking with us this morning, Hannah. Happy to be here. So American Ghost is about your great-great-grandmother, Julia Staub, who is reputed to haunt the La Posada Hotel in Santa Fe. What do you remember about finding out that your relative is something of a famous ghost here in New Mexico? Well, um, when I first, you know, when I was a kid, she was just a distant ancestor, my great-great-grandmother. Um, I, I knew about her and her more famous husband, Abraham Staub, who was a big um, merchant on the Santa Fe Trail. And it wasn't until I was you know, 10 or 11 that we started hearing ghost stories about her. Um, this was sort of late 70s, early 1980s, and suddenly we started hearing all these stories that she haunted her former home, which is now La Posada Hotel in Santa Fe. And um, so the whole family was just tickled to have a ghost in the family, and, and we uh, all started you know, reading newspaper articles and sharing stories about her exploits at the hotel. Now, what is your family's connection to that hotel? Uh, well, this was originally built as our my great great grandfather Abraham Staub's family home. He built it in um, I think it was finished in 1882. It was the sort of grandest Victorian structure in Santa Fe at the time. Uh, they had lived in adobes in Santa Fe like everybody else, and he he was a German immigrant, and then had after um, the Civil War had gone back and brought Julia, his wife, over from the same village where they grew up in Germany. And um, so I think he had always aspired to build a fancy home in Santa Fe. And finally, when he had made it, he built this home and um, they moved in there in 1882. And so that was in our family until the 1920s when it was sold and it became a hotel soon thereafter. Can you tell me what were the what were those stories of hauntings like when you were first hearing them? Well, um, so uh, the first story that that I was able to find, I sort of combed through newspapers from the late 1970s, was um, a janitor at at La Posada at the hotel was cleaning late at night in a bathroom, and he saw this this pale woman with white hair in a Victorian dress standing before him and promptly dropped his broom and ran away. And um, and then there started to be lots more reports of people seeing her sometimes in the hallway, a lot of times at the at the top of the stairs. There are these very fancy stairs right when you go into the old home um, that's still sort of surrounded by the hotel now. And um, and then people, you know, various reports of lights flickering, fire gas fireplaces going on and off without being turned on and off, and chandeliers swaying. Um, People, particularly who stayed in her room, which was up at the top of the stairs, had lots of reports of blankets being ripped off and the room temperature plunging, balls of light going through the room and um, seeing her sort of standing at the end of the bed watching them. (laughs) Now, before you began your research for the book, what was was Julia's story as you remember it being told to you uh, before you really had the facts? Well, you know, um, her story has really changed over the years and certainly changed once she became sort of a famous ghost. Um, So, you know, when I was a kid, I just sort of knew of them as distant 
ancestors, and we were very proud of them because they were sort of pioneers that had come along the Santa Fe Trail uh, before the railroad came through, and Abraham had been a very successful dry goods merchant, and um, so we had a long family history there on, on both sides of my, my, this is my dad's family, on both sides of my dad's family, and he grew up in Albuquerque. Um, so we were sort of proud of them, but I, I didn't know much about them. And then, um, you know, once once her ghost started appearing, the, the story sort of changed. She went from just being sort of a pioneer wife to being... Um, being sort of a, a battered woman, they said she was very unhappy and that she had shut herself in the room, that she'd lost a child in the house and her hair had turned white and she you know, went in a room and never left and died there. Perhaps she was killed and that Abraham, her husband, was abusive and had locked her, perhaps chained her to the radiator. So the stories really changed from... Uh, from just being sort of a anonymous wife to being this this tortured soul. I'm speaking with author Hannah Nordhaus about her book American Ghost, and we very much would like to hear from our listeners today. Have you ever had a ghostly encounter? You can tell us that story by calling 505-277-5866, or you can email us at letstalk at org. So, Hannah. Going from hearing about these haunted stories about your ancestor, your great-great-grandmother, Julia, what prompted you to find out more about her story for yourself? Well, so I had always been intrigued by her story ever since I learned that she was potentially a famous ghost. And um uh, actually, in the, when I started out as a journalist, I, I worked at the, I was an intern at the Village Voice in New York City, and the first article I ever published was about her. And it was in 1992, and it was about, I don't know, it was sort of about women being repressed and suppressed. And um, it was the year of the woman in, in uh, elections, and there was like five women in Congress or in the Senate or something that was considered a big year. And so I, I was very outraged about that. And I wrote about Julia being this bitter, angry ghost. So I, I, I wrote about her when I was very young. I was like 23 years old or something. And then I just forgot about her for a while. And, uh, you know, a few years ago when I was, I was, you know, young mother had, uh, I just started thinking about her again and just thinking about you know, I was driving through the mountains and thinking about what it would be like to to be a mother and a young woman moving to a place like New Mexico in, in 1866 when she came over. And I just just realized that, you know, I'd, she'd sort of been a, a feature of my of my psyche. I've been thinking about her all throughout these milestones in my life and thinking about what I was just started wondering what her life was really like. And at that point in time, it was much easier to do, do document searches and newspaper searches. And I just decided it was time to, to try to separate the person from the legend of her life. And you wound up following her story right back to her hometown in Germany. How did this research and, and the literal journey that you went on change your view of your own family's identity? Uh, pardon, I couldn't hear the end of that. Oh, I'm my sorry. View of... How did it change your view of your own family's identity, learning learning the facts about Julia's life um, right back to Germany? Oh, well, I mean, 
I just, I hadn't known anything about where we came from in Germany or what what life was like for for people in Germany. They they were Jewish, and um, I you know they came over. My great grandfather came over and eight great great grandfather came over in 1854, and then she came after the Civil War and. Um, it just hadn't even occurred to me what their life was like. So one of the the funnest things in researching, there are lots of fun things. I loved researching this book. It was, it was sort of hard to write, <laughs> but it was really fun to research, was going back to Germany and learning about this. There was a real exodus of Germans in general to the U.S. in the 1840s, 1850s, and then particularly of Jews, um, and following a sort of chain migration of Abraham came over from this town, Luchta, and he followed his cousins who came to New Mexico, came to Missouri, where a lot of Germans were, and then to New Mexico along the Santa Fe Trail, and sort of this chain of of family helping each other out, and they all started businesses. And um, so, you know, I saw the house where she grew up, and I, you know, saw just saw, saw like, where the Jewish congregation did their observances, which was not, they weren't allowed to have synagogues, it was just this little house, and just just saw what life would have been like in, in 19th century small town Germany, and uh, it was really, really an education in, in what, just I, I had no idea where my family came from, so it was really interesting. And then you wound up also not just using document searches and and that sort of thing, you wound up going some non-traditional methods, including consulting with psychics and dowsers. Uh, what what made you decide to go the supernatural route as well? Well, it, it seemed like uh, how could I not, considering like the whole reason I was writing a book about her was because she's a famous ghost. So um, it seemed like I had to address the fact that people saw, thought they saw her floating around a hotel, a haunted hotel. Um, and the other thing was that I wasn't sure how much information I would find about her life, how much documentation there was. And she was sort of invisible in life um, as, as a woman, as a wife of, you know, her Abraham, her husband had lots of things written about him, but her, about him, but not so, there's not much about her. So I sort of thought the only way I'd be able to fill in some of these gaps and sort of add flesh and blood to the to the bones of her story was to speak to people who claimed to speak to the dead. Um, I ended up actually finding a lot more documentation than I thought I would, but I, still, you know, it's, it, and I just, in a way, I didn't quite expect. I also thought it would be comic relief. Like, I, you know, I just thought it would be funny to talk to psychics. Um, but they actually sort of brought her alive to me in a way that I don't think it would have happened if I hadn't done that. And what sort of thing did you find out from uh, from talking to these folks? Well, I mean, different things from different people. I talked to a lot of them. And, you know, sometimes the stories lined up. Sometimes they didn't. Um, but, you know, everybody sort of felt that she was unhappy, that there was something horrible that had happened to her in her life, that, that she had, there was, um, she had lost this child late in, not late in life, but there, she lost a child right before she disappeared into her room. And that was, that was what the ghost story said. And um, that was actually, in fact, sort of what happened. And a lot of them talked about the losing a child and then also about sort of be a general sadness. There was a lot of sadness that they saw in her. And, and I don't know, you know, like any ghost maybe has a sad story. Maybe that's, that's what, what ghost, psychics do when they talk to ghosts. Um, but 
but they, yeah, she in some way they really brought her alive to me in a lot of ways. We have a call from Annunciata in Taos. Good morning, Annunciata. What would you like to share with us today? Um, I had an uncle, a great uncle. His name was Skeets, and uh, he was my father's uncle. But uh, he was actually younger than my father. He was uh, a lot of times, in, I'm Italian from uh, Naples, and uh, in uh, Italian families back in those days, quite often uh, – the parents would start having children again when their children were having children. So my father's uncle was actually younger than he was, and uh, he was a, a champion for me. He was the kind of guy who stood by me. And um, when I wanted to go to college, my father didn't want me to go to college. He wanted me to go and get married, and uh, I fought him on that tooth, thick, and nail. But uh, my uncle Skeets came up with the money and uh, and sent me to college. And uh, anyway, so... I was living here in Taos, but I went on vacation, and I came back, and I woke up at like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and Skeets was sitting on the foot of my bed. Hmm. And uh, as I rose, he disappeared, and I said to, I called my daughter, because uh, she had um, still been in touch with the family. I kind of broke ties a long time ago. And I said, uh, what, what's going on with Uncle Skeets? And she said, he died last night. How do you know? And I said, he was sitting on the foot of my bed this morning. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's like he's saying goodbye. It's, uh, I have things like that happen to me. Uh, I've had the dead appear on quite a number of occasions. And it, it's not shocking. I, I think having stuff like that happen to you has to do with uh, having a childish heart. If, mm. if, you're, if you know everything, uh, what can happen for you? But if you don't know everything, if you're uh, constantly in awe, I think uh, things like that can happen to you more easily. Well, thank you so much for calling us this morning, Annunciata. You're welcome. And we have a call from Ellen in Albuquerque as well. Good morning, Ellen. Do you have a story to share with us this morning? Yeah, good morning. Um, My, well, my husband's first wife, Jenny, of 47 years, um, came to visit, visit us one time. We were at this uh, gospel concert, and the song was Center of My Joy. Now, we were just sitting there just enjoying the music, and all, and um, Jenny came down. She was standing right next to me, and I just happened to look over to my, to my right, and, she, and I said, hi, Jenny, you know, and she just loved that kind of music, uh-huh. so... I honestly think that she came down just to listen to the song, and then when it was over, then she left. I thought that was really kind of cool. And it was like, I I don't know, but I think it was her way of saying, I'm doing fine. I just Mm. came to say hi, you know, you know, that kind of thing. Like I said, they were married for 47 years, so... And they, and she passed in 2015. So it's. Um, I love this idea of the, the the personal connection coming through with these uh, encounters rather than than something frightening. Thank you so much for calling us, Ellen. Uh, now, Hannah, talking again about your great great grandmother, who's reputed to 
haunt the La Posada Hotel in Santa Fe. You wound up, as, as part of your book, going and staying the night in her room. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, it was, um, I didn't sleep a lot. <laughs> it was, um, first of all, the room is right above the bar, which is, you know, a quite a lively bar. And I think there was like a jazz band there that night. So there, I wouldn't have slept a lot, even if I weren't expecting to have an encounter with a ghost. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think things sort of quieted down at like midnight or one. And um, I, uh, I, you know, I so I sort of kept, sort of kept waking up and, thinking someone was ripping off the blanket, but it was just a dream and back and sort of in and out of sleep. And then um, late, I finally fell asleep and slept for a while. And then I woke up and saw this like green light and I didn't have my glasses on. I was sort of looking and I thought maybe it was, maybe it was like the smoke alarm or something, or maybe there was like police, oh. police, um, you know, somehow there was police out front and it was reflecting, but um it was sort of these green balls like up on a wall and they sort of spun for a while and then went away. And I, you know, got up in the morning and looked around and there was no smoke alarm there. And there was no way that you sort of the, the way the room, the way the windows are, the, the roof of the sort of annex of the building blocks any lights from the street. So, um, I, you know, I sort of thought, well, I guess maybe I had an encounter and then I, but I sort of forgot about it. And then I went downstairs and checked out, um, and the, the people at the front desk asked if I had an experience and I told them about sort of sheepishly told them about the lights. And they said that there's another guest in one of the casitas. They have all these little casitas on the grounds that woke up at three in the morning and had the exact same experience. So, which Mm. made me think maybe it was real, but you know, it's hard to tell when you're in and out of sleep like that. Well, I'm interested, you know, with an experience like that, and then, of course, actually going into her life, do you feel that you have, like, a relationship with Julia now? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I, I mean, I spent sort of three years obsessed with her and trying to know everything there was to know about her. And, you know, as, as we discussed, talking to psychics and dowsers and tarot card readers and um, just trying to, to get into her head. And, um, and I feel, I feel sad for her. I feel very protective of her. Um, I feel sort of like I'm her champion. I hope I haven't exposed her too much. Um, but yeah, I do. You know, I, I definitely feel both to her and her daughter, Bertha, who's my great grandmother. I, I feel like I, I got to know them and to love them. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your book, American Ghost. Um, Thank you. You bet. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. We are talking stories of the supernatural in New Mexico today. Have you ever experienced a ghostly encounter or do you know somebody who has? Tell us about it. You can call us at 505-277-5866 or tweet to us using the hashtag Let's Talk NM. We will be back in a moment. Tribal courts have a limited scope but are an important way to determine justice for a wide range of offenses. Many tribal court officials are making inroads with innovative programs that promote healing over punishment. We'll hear about the growing collective strength of tribal courts on the next Native America Calling. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM.
KUNM wants to help our listeners in Santa Fe with the removal of old vehicles now that the junk vehicle ordinance is in effect. We just learned that any junk vehicles that don't comply with the new ordinance could be subject to fines, and we want to help. If you have a junker that needs to be removed from your property, just give us a call. We'll come pick it up for free and turn that old car into support for KUNM. Call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Ty Bannerman, and we are telling some spooky stories here in the studio. And I am joined today by my next guest, Stephen Emmons, who is actually the operations manager for KUNM. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Ty. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in, making a rare on-the-air appearance for us. Now, the reason that you're here, Stephen, is... Uh, is that you have some stories of the supernatural right here at KUNM. Turns out that this building is, for want of a better word, haunted. Yeah, it certainly seems to be. Um, we've I've heard stories uh, for many years of paranormal activity, some poltergeist activity perhaps here on the third floor. And uh, it's kind of fascinating, really. Um, People have shared their stories of seeing shadows out of the corner of their eyes as they're here doing a show or hearing doors open and close, but nobody being there. Um, I remember the first time that I actually came up to KUNM probably 20 years ago. Um, I sat in on an overnight freeform with DJ Mello, and I remember she told me uh, that this was before we remodeled up here. And um, she told me that there was uh, some sort of ghost that lived in the corner of the music library that would knock CDs off the shelf while you were in there late at night. Now we've got uh, two empty chairs here at the uh, at the table with us right now. And I'm kind of looking at them wondering if uh, something might be sitting there <laughs> joining us. Uh, feel free to join in anytime, ghosts. Uh, there is one story in particular that you and I have talked about, uh, and it occurred on November 1st of 2019. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so um, this happened um, uh, about three years ago, and uh, late night during the show Tombstone Rock. And, um, Appropriate. Yep. <laughs> I was almost thinking of calling this Beyond the Tombstone. And... Um, there was uh, there were a group of folks up here doing doing the show and hanging out, and there was some strange occurrences that happened, and I had a chance to talk to Greg Markham and some of his friends um, about what happened. That's right, and you were kind enough to actually record a, a little segment for us. So. Yeah, so we were able to um, go back to the. We have a pretty extensive um, archive of all of our digital, all of our all of our music, and all of our programming here. So I went back and found um, the audio of that particular night, and sure enough, you can hear some some strange things that happen. Well, let's go ahead and take a listen. A little over three years ago, in the early hours of September 12, 2019, something strange happened in the KUNM studios during the Tombstone Rock Show. We're going to hear a brief bit of audio from that night. Earlier this week, I interviewed host Greg Markham and his friends Derek Lanebull and Pearl Carice about what happened. Greg sets the mood, then we hear part of the broadcast. Finally, Pearl shares her memories of that night and how she learned something about her family. Hold on to your coffee cup. We're going to hear some metal music. It was a nice, normal night, dark <laughs> yep. in the studio, yep. and comfortable, and we were getting around to playing some local music that, uh, from the band Desecrated Humanity that had just gotten us a copy of that. 
Yep. <laughs> started playing it. We're doing our normal just kind of rounds. It goes and it flips. Well, we just had an interesting experience. Yeah, what did anybody else out there hear that? Like, don't tell, uh, don't tell me. Like, it was just us no, just like that. Yeah. that straight up happened. The disc started skipping and flipping, and and then like, know. like we're hearing this music, and then next minute we hear the police playing, and then yeah, like, and all of a sudden it just switches back, and I'm just like, that I, was just eerie. Yeah, that was just weird. I think again. If anything, I'm not, I mean, if anything, that was a paranormal experience just happening with us right there. That's again, I could be wrong, but that was eerie. <laughs> Basically, that night. Well, usually when I come with Derek to the radio station, like sometimes I get too tired staying up that late, so I'll go to sleep in like the yeah, yeah the, the prep, prep room. I'll go to sleep in there, but for <laughs> some late. reason I woke up at the exact time, and all I hear is. Derek and Greg in the other room, like, what was that? Did you guys hear that? <laughs> it wasn't until later on the that next day, I told my mom about what happened, and she was like, you used to have an uncle that worked there. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, that was his favorite song he used to start his show with. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I have to tell the guys. So I told Derek right away, and he was like, I think, yes, yeah, so your uncle was there. <laughs> In our tradition, our native tradition, November 1st is when, you know, people start coming back that had passed on to come visit family. So I kind of checked it up to maybe, you know, he's already on his way back. So that was, you know, maybe what that was. So it wasn't necessarily like a scary feeling to me, but more comfort that somebody or family was here with me. Then I also remembered that same day that a few weeks prior, I had my own paranormal experience in the bathrooms here at KUNM. And I was there washing my hands, and I looked in the mirror, and I saw something dart behind me in the handicap stall. And it went from my left, my right side to my left side. And when I looked back, I was like, there's no way somebody could run across because going from left to right, there is nowhere for anybody to run. And then I started washing my hands and I was just like, okay, I'm just not gonna think about it. And then I looked up again and I saw a face peek out from the other side of the stall. And I just washed my hands, dried it real quick and then went out <laughs> and I told, asked Derek, can you let me back in please? Like I'm scared. <laughs> wow, so, what, what did the face look like? It was just a white face with long hair. That's all I saw. Like, I didn't even see the rest of the body. The The way that that thing had ran across, it looked like it was just wearing white. All all white, but black, long hair. Kind of like the movies. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm seeing things because it's, you know, like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to think about it. Because my family always tells me, like, if, you know, when you're in a place and you start feeling weird like that, just tell whatever it is. Like, I'm not here to hurt you or do anything to you, so leave me alone. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna pretend it's not there and that's when I saw the face look at me and that's all I could really remember was just the white with the long hair hanging sideways. That's Pearl Carice with Derek Lamble and Greg Markham host of Tombstone Rock. 
So, Stephen, thanks for sharing that with us. You're kind of the unofficial keeper of KUNM ghost stories. I'm curious, has that changed your experience here? Do you get worried about hauntings when you're... No, it hasn't. Um, you know, I think, you know, maybe when I'm washing my hands in the restroom, I might look in the mirror just to see if there's anything there. But um, no, I, I don't think it's changed really how I feel. I've never seen anything up here, so... You know, I I don't I don't think so. I, you know, part of I, I people have said that they've seen, um, you know, shadows peek around the corner and um, lights out of the corner of their eye, perhaps. But um, not you. No, I I, I, I haven't seen anything here. <laughs> Well, I'd like to bring into this uh, conversation uh, Julia C. Butler-Brown. She is the owner of ABQ Tours, which conducts walking tours in Albuquerque's Old Town, um, one of the most popular of which is a ghost tour. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Now, I understand that you actually started not as a tour guide, but as a ghost hunter. I wonder, can you tell me your impressions of uh, Stephen's stories here? Does this sound like ghostly activity to you? Oh, you know, shadow people, what we call them, are very, very common. And it happens to a lot of people, you know, where you experience seeing something normally out of the corner of your eye, either a light shadow or a dark shadow going by. And those are very, very common. Um, I don't think that one, you know, the dark or light is necessarily good or bad. That's just how they show up. And, yeah, I've, I've heard stories about there and about UNM and the Zimmerman Library and of a few ghosts that are lingering around there. Now, uh, Stephen, you have a theory about why there might be elevated levels of activity here at the KUNM studio. Right. Would you and like to tell us? Let me just first say that I very much consider myself an armchair paranormal investigator. I have no experience with it necessarily. But, you know, one thing that's uh, that's up here, we have a lot of electronic equipment here for all of the broadcast things, the CD players, all of the computers and such. And there are a lot of um, satellite dishes and antennas on the roof here. So I kind of think that maybe that helps channel some of the supernatural here, perhaps. So it's less, you know, I don't think there's necessarily ghosts that of people who used to be here or anything. It's more that um, the all the equipment and, and the technology here helps maybe make this more of a, maybe a, a portal or something. What do you think, Julia? You work here. Very well could be. The electronics could be picking up things that normally you might not notice there on your own if the equipment weren't there. Um, and it very well could be. So, uh, actually, we just got a um, got a comment from our, uh, our engineer that says, uh, he usually comes in Wednesday, sets up and locks everything and leaves, but often on Thursday morning, the doors are open and unlocked, and Roman says he is not here uh, to do that. So that's... That's kind of an alarming fact. Um, so, maybe Julia. Maybe they could just be trying to get his attention. And like uh, your previous guest mentioned, maybe just try uh, talking with him. Say, okay, I see you. Unlock the door <laughs> and see if that helps. Um, it doesn't sound like anything I'd be frightened of or worried about, mm -hmm. but maybe just acknowledge it. Yeah, I think it's it good be to be with... respectful. Yes, yes. So, Julia, I wanted to know, how did you make the transition from ghost hunter to ghost tour guide? Well, you know, we've been doing tours for like 22 years, and 
really, it, it, it became a way to show Old Town. I really just fell in love with the historic Old Town area and the history there and the stories and the people and just the number of, of ghost stories that people tell me in one little area. I mean, Old Town is only, you know, like three blocks by four blocks wide. Mm-hmm. And we get stories of activity from people who work in Old Town or live in Old Town pretty much on a weekly basis. And it could be something as little as, you know, the shadow person or, like you said, a door being unlocked. But weird occurrences that the people Mm -hmm. feel. And I just really wanted to help people experience Old Town, both its past history and its current vitality. I just got a little report from from my producer that our phone lines just got shut down without anybody actually doing it on purpose. So I, I... We are very respectful here to any ghosts that are messing with our electronics right now. Um, So I'm kind of curious, Julia. So I understand what you're saying about like hearing a lot of ghost stories and, of course, relating the stories of the history in in Old Town. Was Old Town a place that you frequented as a ghost hunter? You know, several ghost hunters and paranormal investigators have been throughout most of the buildings there in Old Town over the last 20 years. And it was not, you know, I had only actually been to Old Town a few times when I got involved with this, but it always just gave me, it gave me a really focused feeling whenever I was in Old Town. It just really felt like this was something that needed to be done, that I needed to be down there, and that other people needed to experience. So no, previously, you know, to to starting the business, I personally had not been in a lot of buildings, but I just Mm -hmm. had a weird feeling that that's where I was supposed to be. It makes sense as far as the history of the area. And actually, uh, Stephen, who's here with me in the studio, uh, has a question for you about an experience that he had in that area. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Juliet. So I remember it was probably like in April or May of this year, I was walking with a friend on a late on a Friday night around Tigway Park. And we happened to come across the playground and I saw a swing, two of the swings swinging by themselves in the park, (laughs) just back and forth, back and forth. There was no wind, no breeze, no nothing. Two of the other ones were just still. They weren't moving, but two of the swings were moving back and forth on their own. And wow, that, I, that, that's definitely creepy. Yeah, I was wondering is is there any history of anything in Tigway Park? Is that you know what? Well, you know, I, numerous the, people. The whole area, and again, we're in an area you know that people have inhabited for thousands of years, and for whatever reason, children in particular really just seem to come back and people really experience children, children's play areas. Uh, You know, that particular area actually at one time was a pond um, that people used to go boating on in the summer and ice skating (laughs) during the winter. It was part of Herman Bluer's market farm and garden there. Um, And, yeah, there have been stories, you know, a few reports I've read in newspapers of regarding murders or things that have happened there. But I really think the children kind of just like to be mischievous and like to get noticed. And it, it appears that they definitely got your attention. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that day. Um, you know, no specifics for kids in that area, but, you know, a shop owner very close to there in the back of Patio Market, you know, she was convinced she had a child ghost in her store because she'd come in in the morning and she had, like, um, some Native American dolls and things, that the dolls, she'd come in and the dolls would be out like someone had been playing with them overnight. 
and they were kind of expensive, so she'd put them back, and the dolls would still come out every night. Well, I suggested, well, maybe get something else, and so she brought in a different doll and a little bowl of candy and put the candy out, and after that, her expensive dolls stopped moving. It was just the little doll she'd find in different places everywhere. So it seems like from... From several of these stories that we've had today, a lot of a lot of the times the the haunting can be not a, not necessarily a frightening experience, but it's really about kind of reaching out to the spirit that may be in your home and and kind of meeting them on their level. Is that is that fair, Julia? Definitely. You know, I, not that people don't have some scary experiences. I think more. Um, it seems like something is just trying to get their attention for whatever reason. And it's not scary. It's not, you know, they're not malevolent in any way. They just, want, they just want to get your attention. And most of the times people who are having these experiences, they start getting a little unnerved, right? But once they actually do address it, whether to the house in general or the room, say, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm just fixing up the place. I'm not going <laughs> to hurt it. I'm just here. The people find that the activity will normally settle down. So would you recommend that that's how people approach hauntings? Uh, you know, I, I want people to do what is best for them. Um, you know, we get a lot of reports from people who, who are seriously freaked out. Um, and to be honest, sometimes there are other factors involved, uh, you know, be it alcohol, drugs, you know, mental stability. But other times people do actually have real experiences. And I say reach out and do what makes them feel comfortable. You know, there's several different beliefs from, you know, uh, religion and emotions and past history that they need to do what, what feels comfortable for them. But number one, always, you know, get more information because I think knowledge really will help them probably to be less afraid. We have been speaking to Julia C. Butler-Brown of ABQ Tours, and I am sorry to say it, but we have run out of time. Thanks to everyone who called in and shared their stories. Thanks so much to our guests, Stephen Emmons, Hannah Nordhaus, Julia Butler-Brown, and Nasario Garcia. If you missed part of the show, we will have the audio up on our website soon, or you can subscribe to the Let's Talk New Mexico podcast, where wherever you get your podcasts. Our engineer this morning is Marino Spencer. Jeanette Dedios handled the phones. Cave Movahead live tweeted. And Megan Kamrick is our executive producer. I'm Terrifying Ty Bannerman, and this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.